0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 37, is is our salvation conditional on more than just forgiveness does god offer forgiveness for sins for which we are unaware and therefore offer no repentance if so what is the precedent for that privilege what is the difference between judgments chastening and trials during the ecclesial age
1: continuing uh, to consider the divine principle of forgiveness we've come to understand that god offers forgiveness so that his perfect son will not have to be alone after death is eliminated and god is all in all we've considered the conditions for divine forgiveness and that there are limitations for forgiveness as well as there being two unforgivable sins although we we're only subject to one of those unforgivable sins during our last generation of the ecclesial age. We consider the application of our forgiving others, and that forgiving most definitely does not require forgetting, as we are not required to act without wisdom in the face of repetitive abuse. We are not called to be masochists. We consider the divinely appointed transition in the appointed forgiveness rituals as the divine plan has and will progress through different priesthood ages we also address the issue of whether or not forgiveness is all that's necessary for Christ's approval at the at the judgment and inheriting immortal immortal life now we turn our attention to the relationship and the balance between forgiveness and judgment which would have to include the question about whether God judges someone even after forgiving them for their sin. And how do these issues apply to ourselves? Jude addresses the endless apostasy progression within the enlightened community, directly answering our question. For context's sake and for personal effectiveness, we should understand Jude places this advice in the timeframe of the last time which, of course, directly identifies our exact generation. Uh, we pick up a Jude verse 17. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit. Our enlightened community at this point in the ecclesial age, immediately preceding the introduction of the Millennial Kingdom, is absolutely obsessed with the understanding that these are absolutely the last days, focusing on whatever real or imaginary signs of the times will excite our imaginations. Therefore, it is exceedingly strange when these same brethren and sisters deflect the warning in Jude's letter to the enlightened communities, from ourselves to must-be-other generations. In fact, every person Jude references were members of the enlightened community in different ages, including Cain, the hundreds of the enlightened that were incinerated at Sodom and Gomorrah, the Levites usurping the role of priests in the rebellion of Korah, along with Korah, the wannabe priests returning from Babylon without any kind of genealogy proof of their desired appointment, and along with Balaam, who was a prophet of God. But the point at this time is the precedent Jude emphasizes, that God destroyed after he saved. Uh, We go back to verse five, and Jude writes, I will therefore put you in remembrance, Though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not? One of the conditions we've previously noted in relation to the basis of our salvation was faithfully continuing to the end. This is the issue stressed by Jude, that we can be saved, but then subsequently judged as unacceptable to God as was the experience of the enlightened community that was saved from the oppressive Egyptian slavery only to be condemned and die in the wilderness without inheriting the promised land. The point is that the same thing can happen to ourselves in these last times that Jude identifies directly uh, with previous generations of the enlightened community. That ecclesial age forgiveness ritual of baptism does not save us. All it does is commit us. After enlightenment, we still have that third calling stage, the calling to performance that serves as the last voluntary calling response. The fourth call from God is the call to Christ's judgment, and that is not voluntary. That is mandatory. This warning from Jude demonstrates that forgiveness can be revoked. That understanding is validated by the fact that forgiveness is always conditional. Let's consider one of the Kingdom of Heaven parables of Jesus that demonstrates this understanding of how forgiveness can be revoked. We read in Matthew 18, um, Jesus speaking, he says, therefore is the Kingdom of Heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry. And came and told unto their lord all that was done then his lord after that he had called him said unto him o thou wicked servant i forgave you all that debt because you desired me shouldst not thou also have had compassion on your fellow servant even as i had pity on you and his lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors Till he should pay all that was due unto him, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. So first, Jesus begins this parable by defining it as, uh, as a likeness for the kingdom of heaven. He concludes his parable by saying, likewise shall my heavenly Father do also to you, if, there's that little word again with very large implications. Clearly, even continuing forgiveness is conditional. That forgiveness we are dependent upon for our salvation that were afforded through Jesus Christ can be revoked. Just like Jude highlighted, We have to continue faithfully to the end. For that matter, our path can't even be one of merely sustaining, like uh, running in place or treading water. We are required to bear fruit, which means a maturing process. That's the principle in the exhortation, silently shouted, testified by the creational testimony of agriculture. In addition to understanding that the privilege of forgiveness can be revoked, we should also recognize that there are degrees of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not presented in scripture as an all or nothing principle. This understanding parallels the fact that there is a variable nature to the degree of divine offense imposed by sins. That observation is quite simple and obvious on the basis of the variable procedures for seeking God's renewed favor for a particular offense against him. Some divine offenses demanded a ritual sin offering, which could be variable. The high priest had to offer a bullock when he sinned. A ruler could offer a less expensive male goat. Uh, The most financially destitute within the enlightened community could offer an ephah of fine flour. That was not even a blood offering for that person's sin. Then there were procedures for cleansing from an unclean and unholy condition that often included a sin offering, like the red heifer or two birds or a lamb for a mother giving birth. There were also sins or offenses against God's righteousness for which there was no forgiveness. The one who offended God by violating Sabbath law or adultery or murder, had to be executed without any avenue of repentance. The priests were even warned that they had to wash their hands and feet in the water at the bronze laver before approaching the altar of burnt offering or or entering the tabernacle under penalty of death. There were variable judgments for sin. There were variable avenues for soliciting God's forgiveness under the laws of the first kingdom of God. Therefore, it's very reasonable to to expect there are variable degrees of forgiveness, in addition to the fact that forgiveness can be revoked. This issue is powerfully demonstrated in the judgment against King David for his sins of adultery and contract murder. Ordinarily, each of those sins imposed an automatic death penalty, but Nathan told David that his sin had already been forgiven. Since the illegitimate child of David in Bathsheba was already born and Uriah long dead, it's very safe to understand David had confessed these sins to God and asked for forgiveness quite probably on a number of occasions knowing David. In 2 Samuel 12 we read, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the lord also has put away your sin you shall not die howbeit because by this sin you have given great occasion to the enemies of the lord to blaspheme the child also that is born unto you shall surely die the forgiveness the forgiveness god gave to david was limited to his stay of execution god still judged david by killing their child from that sin of adultery. Also, God would not protect David from the ambitions of his own son, Absalom, and the resulting personal humiliations. Just as there are variable degrees of offense in our sins against God, there are variable degrees of forgiveness and variable degrees of judgment. Oversimplification is the great tool of the serpent frame of reference. Therefore, when it comes to our final and ultimate judgment, when Jesus will determine if he does or does not want us for eternal companions, there is no sin for which a previous forgiveness cannot be revoked. This understanding is even understood by the unenlightened community, the sons of men as scripture defines them, as to the sons of God, which defines the enlightened community, we certainly see these issues of a forgiveness that can be revoked, and variable degrees of offense that incur variable judgments. There is first-degree murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter, that all carry descending judgments. There are degrees of offenses, like misdemeanors, and felonies, with, and each carries separate ranges of variable judgments. Probation is a condition that demonstrates a conditional forgiveness. Restored privileges can be revoked on the basis of disrespecting the terms of probation, such as who one socializes with. The privileges of a probationary forgiveness of the full term of one's judgment can be revoked due to disrespecting the responsibilities imposed on that probationary forgiveness. Therefore, it shouldn't be difficult to recognize how God imposes similar conditions on forgiveness and judgments. There are multiple judgments God can impose while we live, but at this time these can be very difficult to identify as being God-directed or just a natural outworking of the natural order. We're in the period of prophesied divine silence and we live at the stage when The principle of sin is incredibly powerful in societies around the world, and therefore the physical effects of sin are also extreme. There is no kingdom of God, as there still was at the beginning of the ecclesial age. However, despite not being able to be told by a prophet if any hardship we endure is God-directed or not, we have to understand a couple of other divine rules which are chastening and trials. Uh, They can be the same, and they can be different. In uh, Hebrews chapter 12, Paul writes, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits, and live? For they, verily, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness, meaning immortalization. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, this is chastening, which means an unpleasant correction like a father disciplining his son. Uh, my, my father loved me enough to discipline me, uh, being physically disciplined me, I should say. Uh, being willing to discipline your child physically is proof of our love, at least according to God. In Proverbs 13 and 24 read, he that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. And also in Proverbs 22, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. It should never be anger that prompts the physical disciplining of a child. It should always be love. The wisdom of this world insists that the physical discipline of a child is an act of violence and not love. The wisdom of the serpent is always contradictory to the wisdom of God. The goal of a loving parent is to provide an instinctive association in the maturing child between pain and ungodly behavior. As Paul writes to the Hebrew Christadelphians, God chastises us because he loves us. Now, as a side note, we can be somewhat creative in that parenting assignment of identifying pain with dishonorable behavior. I remember a time when I had to impress upon one of my daughters that she should never lie. I intentionally intensified my apparent anger at the possibility that she had lied and that she must never lie again for the rest of her life. I then swung my fist into her closet door and literally broke the door. Fortunately, it wasn't solid pine and gave way to my fist. The door had to be replaced, and my hand really hurt like crazy, but but the face, and particularly the very wide eyes of my young daughter, assured me the lesson was learned, and my pain was worth that lesson. So we can be a little creative in that instinctive identification. should not be Surprising that society generates laws against loving parental discipline. And Jesus Christ prophesied at the time of the end that the love of many would wax cold. I I, I recognize that was primarily directed to the enlightened community, but I, I think there is also a comprehensive application as well because it's the unenlightened that corrupts the enlightened community. The point is that God will discipline us He will chastise us, correcting us, and teaching us through unpleasant experiences designed to make us rethink our decisions, our words, our actions. He will impose trials as well that do not qualify as chastening or as judgments, but are still unpleasant and quite challenging. A trial does not qualify as a judgment at all. differentiating this experience from chastisement. Now God's trial for Abraham was to command the sacrificial execution of Isaac, the son of promise. That wasn't a judgment, it wasn't a chastening. It was just a trial. The wrongful imprisonment of Joseph was not a judgment or chastising for error. It was a trial intended to prepare him for becoming the top advisor to Pharaoh for being exalted to wealth, glory, and political power. The incredible intense suffering of Job was not a judgment or a chastising experience, even though it was presumed it had to be. And that's that's actually why Job objected to God inflicting him with such horrible suffering. That trial was educational in nature, and for several parties, including Job and Bildad so far, and Eliphaz, and I personally think also Elihu, our problem at this time in God's plan is how to discern the challenging events in our lives as being just a consequence of time and chance, or chastisement, or a judgment, or a trial. We're still operating during the prophesied silence of God, which will end with the restoration of the kingdom of God. We're not given answers from prophets or seers or God appointed leaders. There are no God directed dreams or visions, no prophets. But we do have what we need from the Word of God. But our discernment can certainly be impaired by an uncircumcised heart. So we should recognize that God's forgiveness can be revoked. And that there are degrees of forgiveness. While forgiveness is certainly a required component of our potential salvation, it is not forgiveness that will be the primary controlling component in our final judgment before Jesus Christ. The final, uh, the foundational reason why God offers forgiveness in the first place, again, why he forgives contradictions to his eternal righteousness, is so that his son will not be all alone in creation. Because if perfection were required for salvation, as it was with our Savior, he would be the only one alive when death is finally eliminated. But as our Creator said when Adam was created, it is not good that man should be alone. So forgiveness has been offered in order to provide God's Son with eternal companions. That's the primary controlling component in our judgment. Will Jesus want us as his eternal companions? There are no technicalities of unforgiven sins or demonstrating some threshold percentage of God's righteousness in our words and deeds and thoughts that are going to qualify us for salvation. There is no grading scale. The issue is simply whether or not Jesus will want us for his eternal companions so that he will not be all alone. Men like Abel and Noah and Abraham, Moses, David, even Samson are offered as templates for salvation in Hebrews 11, and women like Sarah and Rahab are presented as examples of women Jesus will invite to inherit his kingdom. Let's move on to our next question in relation to the divine principle of forgiveness. We recognize that repentance is a condition for forgiveness but will God forgive even when we don't recognize our offense against him don't actually repent in other words can forgiveness be automatic without repentance I mean we've already determined that re- uh, forgiveness is not always automatic but it can be can it ever be can it ever be automatic and this is a very legitimate question because the appointed forgiveness offering the sin offering during the first kingdom of God was expressed as being offered when one became aware of a sin committed in ignorance. In Leviticus 4, we read that when a ruler has sinned and done somewhat through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord his God concerning things which should not be done and is guilty or if his sin, wherein he has sinned, come to his knowledge, he shall bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a male without blemish." There could also, of course, be a sin that we're very much aware of, but do not pursue forgiveness, meaning there's no repentance on our part. Now, that would qualify as a presumptuous sin, for which there is never any forgiveness, like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But What about the sins of ignorance that are not recognized, for which we are not aware? Can these sins of unrepentant ignorance actually be forgiven? Is repentance an absolute requirement for absolving 100% of our sins? Well, one incident um, points to that answer. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, took Sarah, the wife of Abraham, God came to Abimelech in a dream, declaring him to be a dead man, as he had taken the wife of God's prophet. But due to Abimelech's ignorance of this offense against God, his life was spared. There was a condition for this continuing state of forgiveness, requiring Abimelech to restore Sarah to Abraham. But God still forgave Abimelech and did not execute him on the basis of his ignorance. For this sin against God. Additionally, we hear King David repeatedly asking God to forgive all of his sins, not just particular ones he identifies and repents for. Psalm 5 and 25 and certainly 51, uh, David asks that God would blot out all of his iniquities and forgive all of his sins. A very uh, defining incident, in reference to this question, is uh, occurs early in the uh, ministry of Jesus. Uh, there's a crowd in what appears to be Peter's home in Capernaum, that a paralytic has to be lowered down from a broken up roof to be presented to Jesus for a hopeful healing. Jesus is so impressed, he declares the paralytic sins to be forgiven. But this was not an act of repentance. And Jesus does not ask for any confession like some Catholic priest. Jesus just declares that the sins of this man have been forgiven. There are no caveats, no conditions, just a blanket forgiveness. The objection of the scribes hearing this was not based on forgiving unrepentant sins of ignorance, but the understanding that any man could forgive sins against God. And Jesus then proves this privilege by healing the paralytic. So clearly, we can at least possibly be forgiven for our sins of ignorance. But of course, that forgiveness is never automatic. So since there's been no repentance, on what basis can we be forgiven for sins that we've committed against God's righteousness for which we're not even aware Well, we we can get answers from Solomon, Jesus, Peter, Uh, they can each answer that question. Uh, For example, in um, Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews, uh, Proverbs uh, 10 and verse 12, we read that hatred stirs up strifes, but love covers all sins. Love has the capacity to cover all sins not just the sins from which we repent, but even our sins of ignorance. This is um, emphasized quite a bit by Jesus in um, one, of the, one of his uh, events in his life. He'd accepted a dinner invitation at the home of Simon, a Pharisee. During the meal, a woman with a sinful reputation came and washed the feet of Jesus with her tears. And wiped the dirt on his feet off from with her own hair. She even kissed those feet repeatedly. The Pharisee host presumed the supposed inability of Jesus to discern the sinful nature of this woman invalidated his status as a uh, as a prophet of God. <laughs> Jesus forgives the sins of the woman, and we're also told why. And uh, the account is found in Luke chapter seven. We read, uh, starting in verse 40, Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto you. And he said, Master, say on. Well, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, "Mm, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet my head with oil you did not anoint but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment wherefore i say to you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much to whom little is forgiven the same loves little and he said unto him, to her your sins are forgiven and they that sat at me with him began to say within themselves who is this that forgives sins also and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace jesus forgives the sins of this apparently very sinful woman there's no confession no itemizing of her sins we hear jesus say her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. It's like Solomon said, love covers all sins. Well, that love also requires us to be repentant for the sins that we are aware of and and suffer guilt for. Um, But if we are unaware, if we are actually unaware of the times that we contradict God's righteousness, in other words, transgressional sin, there is a capacity to be forgiven through the exercising of love. And of course, first and greatest is the love of God. Far below that is the love of our brothers and sisters. And very far below that is the love of our neighbor, because the love of neighbor only has to be equivalent to the love of self, which is one of the least sins. Every one of us love things more than ourselves. I love my wife, my my children, uh, my grandchildren, far more than I love myself. And I love my brothers and sisters more than I love myself. But I refuse to love my neighbor more than I love myself. But I I try to exercise that equivalent love. So it's that that love for God and Christ and the brotherhood, and our neighbor, that can cover a multitude of sins, even the sins that we may not even be aware of. That is part of the principle of forgiveness. We will continue this avenue of reasoning in our next class about how love covers all sins, therefore including sins that we're unaware of, have not repented for, We will also have to address the question in our original list about forgiveness, about whether there is an application for sin that doesn't even require repentance or forgiveness. We should also be able to address the question about how ecclesias are expected to deal with, address the problem of an absence of repentance for public contradictions of transgressional sin in a loving way.